So please grab a Bible uh, and open up to the book of John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles as you walk into this room, so just keep that in your mind. If, if you want to get up and go grab one now, that'd be great as well. Uh, but we are in John chapter 2. You will definitely need a Bible here every week. So uh, John chapter 2, we're in verses 1 through 11. But we're going to be spending uh, some time in John's gospel this fall, and we're going to be looking at what John calls or signifies as the seven signs of Jesus. Jesus does seven different miracles that John uh, records. He calls them signs, and these signs sort of give us these different portraits about Jesus. Um, the purpose of this in some ways is because we are launching into a brand new season of church life, and um, I, I just really want us as a, as a faith community to be very specific about focusing on the person and the life of Jesus. And I think these signs will help us do that. The reason is because uh, we are a church that uh, is, is very much so centered uh, upon Jesus. And we want our whole church life to be centered upon Jesus, upon, upon who he is and what he has done for us. We call that the gospel. And so uh, we have been that, we've uh, strived to be that as a church, and we will continue to strive to be that as a church. And so John's gospel is great because it continually shows us uh, who Jesus was, what he was all about, and what he came into the world to do. And ultimately, though, these signs show us that he is the one, that he is the one that we've been waiting for. That people in history at this time have been waiting to come, and he is the one that your heart this morning is, is longing for. He's the one that your heart is panting for and is thirsty for, and you might not even realize that. But all those longings and those unmet desires in your life, it's because you were made for the person of Jesus to be in a right relationship with God through Jesus. That John records these things, he says, so that we will know that Jesus really is the Son of God that he really is the savior of the world and that when we believe in Jesus, that he is this, that it's upon believing, John says, that we will have life in his name. We will have true abiding life in the name of Jesus. Okay, you with me? It's gonna be good, okay? I promise you, it's gonna be great, okay? And so uh, today we get to see this miracle, spoiler alert, Jesus turns water into wine. I just gave it away, okay? It's pretty amazing. If you've never read the story, it's going to blow you away. It's incredible. And in verse 11 of our story, John says that this was the first sign that Jesus did among many signs. He turned water into wine. Not simply a party trick. He had something greater in mind here. Well, why would Jesus turn water into wine as his first sign? You ever think about that? It's kind of an odd first sign. In some ways, I mean, other signs that Jesus does, he like raises a person from the dead. He heals people of their sight. He feeds like all these people. We'll see all these stories and what they really mean for our lives. So why would Jesus' first sign be turning water into wine? Why not start with raising the dead? Right, that'd be more of a bang, right? I mean, that'd be a different, maybe, maybe that's the way we would think we should start, but Jesus doesn't. He starts with turning water into wine. Uh, a guy named Reynolds Price He's a professor at Duke University. This quote will be on the screen. He actually commented about this, like why would Jesus, his first sign be this? And he said this, he says, if you are inventing, it's a key word, inventing, if you're inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, that is if you were just making up stories of Jesus to get across his power and glory, 
Who would invent, as the inaugural sign of Jesus' career, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? That is kind of interesting, isn't it? See, we're, think about this. Whenever there is a new leader, a, a leader in, in government, public office, church, anywhere, like organizations you're a part of, whenever there is a new leader that's taken place, uh, their administration within the first zero to 90 days is always a really key time. And, and the things that leaders do within that first season of their new leadership span, they try to do things that will set the tone for their administration. People always wonder, like, what's the first zero to 90 days going to be like? Like, what is this leadership of this person going to entail? And leaders always want to set the tone within those days of what everything is going to really look like and what they're going to care about, what they're going to lead people into. They're trying to set the tone, right, to highlight what their leadership is going to be all about. And so of all the possible signs Jesus could do to start his administration, so to speak, to set the tone for his ministry, he chooses this one. Why? Well, Jesus is showing that his kingdom, and he's the king of it, is coming to earth. And when his kingdom comes, there is always deep, satisfying joy. There is always deep, satisfying joy. C.S. Lewis once said that if you find yourself if you find yourself with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the logical explanation of that is that you were made for another world. I think he's right. So if you are here this morning and you have desires that seem dry and unmet, and if you are lacking in joy, I hope that you will see that Jesus has come to bless us with joy. But stick with me because it might not be what you think. Uh, so our, for our passage, you'll see this on the back of your paper branch notes if you got that when it came in. I'm going to try to put my um, outline on the back of that every week so that you'll see where we're headed. Um, but I, I want us in this passage, I think this passage shows us the stage for joy, the king of joy, and the cost of joy. So the stage for joy, the king of joy, and the cost for joy. First, we see this stage, this stage for joy. Read with me, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, which is like five of them at this point. Then the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So there's this crisis. There's this problem at this wedding. There's drama, and no one wants drama at their wedding. Am I right? Okay. A wedding in, these, in this day and age was a massive occasion in this culture and in this time and in this world. And a wedding, like in a village like Cana, which is in like the hills of Galilee, it's a very insignificant, small town. And so a wedding in a city or a village like that would really be a community-wide event. Okay, I don't know. There's probably towns in, in Oregon that are like this. I don't know, uh, like Drain or somewhere, I'm sure. Like maybe if you get married and you're from Drain, everybody comes. I'm not sure. But it was a community-wide celebration. Uh, if you're from Drain, I, I'm sure it's wonderful, okay? Um, but the wedding celebration, it actually lasted for a week. So people would have the ceremony. They would actually walk home, the, the, the new couple, underneath this canopy. It was like amazing and beautiful, and it was awesome. And they'd go into their house, and then the next morning, 
they would open their doors and they would literally practice hospitality. Everybody could come over for an entire week and it would just be this huge party, okay? Uh, unlike in our culture, there was no honeymoon. Instead, this is what the couple did for a whole week. You just hang out with your family and friends, okay? I'm really glad we did away with that tradition, okay? That's the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Mexico, okay? I didn't want to have my friends and family over for an entire week. All this to say, okay, a wedding was a very big deal, and no one wanted drama at their wedding, just like we wouldn't. And so Jesus is here. He has five disciples with him. He has Mary, his mother, they're attending this wedding. You, you could probably assume then this wedding is of a close friend or family member or something of the like. And the groom at a wedding was responsible for the cost of the entire wedding. And a part of the cost of the wedding was this expectation that wine would be provided the entire time for people. It would always be provided. He was supposed to ensure that there was enough wine for the entire week. The reason is not because people were alcoholics. The reason is something actually more significant because wine in the ancient Near East culture was a symbol of joy and celebration. Wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. This is actually found in your Bibles all over the place. I'm just gonna point out one place, it'll be on the screen. Psalm 104 says this, referring to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. And then in verse 15 it says, and wine, God creates wine to gladden the heart of man. There's a lot of other places where the Bible talks about this, but wine is a symbol of joy. It's, it's a symbol of celebration. It's a symbol of blessing, okay? So to fail in providing adequately for the guests, this would be a massive social disgrace. It could actually have legal ramifications, believe it or not, on these people, is this couple. And so it was pretty severe, like you didn't want this. This was embarrassing, this was shameful. You would always be marked by something like this, okay? It's really difficult for us because we don't really have maybe comparisons. So I really racked my brain this week and this is the best I've got, okay? So let's just say you love dance parties. You're like, I'm gonna throw the biggest dance party ever. And so you, you know, you hire a DJ, you have the greatest food, the best drink. You get all these people that come to your house for this amazing dance party. People are just starting out, they're having an incredible time. They're like, this is the best dance party ever. And all of a sudden your power is turned off and everybody comes to find out that you even paid your power bill in like a year, okay? That'd be quite embarrassing, wouldn't it? You're that guy now. You were gonna be the guy that threw the best dance party ever, and now you're the guy that you're like, oh yeah, he doesn't pay his bills, right? That's shameful, right? That's embarrassing, okay? This example that I just gave you though, it still pales in comparison to how this would affect this couple for their life, really would. And so the situation here, what does it do? It prompts Mary's urgency. So we see here in verses four and five that she comes to Jesus and she informs him about this problem. Look in verse four with me, okay? Sorry, verse three, Mother Mary goes to Jesus, says they have no wine. Verse four, this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, show of hands, how many of you, especially guys, have ever tried to call your mom woman? <laughs> Anybody? Nobody? Good job, guys. Okay, one, how'd that go for you? Yeah, not good. Yeah, I imagined, right? Yeah, so Mary comes to Jesus. I won't lie. The way he responds to her, that would have gotten me like popped in my mouth or something, 
okay? Just kidding, my mom is actually the most gentle woman on the face of the earth. I would probably just heard from it from my father, okay? But this, uh, this response from Jesus, it sounds cold to us. He calls her woman. It's kind of the modern day equivalent of calling her ma'am though, right? The truth is this word Jesus uses, it's, it's meant to politely distance himself from his mother. Well, what's, what's happening here? What Jesus is doing here is indicating that he is no longer under her authority, but he is now living by a new pattern that is timed by the purpose of God his Father. Jesus is about to start performing miracles, but it won't be at the request of his mother. It won't be by the influence of other people that he loves and respects. They won't say, hey, Jesus, we do this, and he's like, ah, okay, whatever, I'll do that. He's not gonna do things, he's only gonna do things that are things that God the Father is telling him to do. What, what Jesus does and who he listens to is solely his Father. How he functions and serves in life is determined by what God the Father is telling him. Not even his own mother can get her toe in the door of his heart and determine how he should live. So what's the reason he pushes back? He says this peculiar phrase. He says, his hour has not yet come. And his hour always, when you see Jesus refer to his hour in the Gospels, he's always referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Okay, guys, think about what all this means. Okay. On one hand, you have this big faux pas, this cultural faux pas, this, this crisis, this problem. And at this time, it was a very big deal. But on the other hand, this is very ordinary. This is very ordinary and honestly, forgettable wedding. It's in a very remote and unimportant part of the world, Cana of Galilee, right? And yet Jesus comes in to deliver everyone from this embarrassment, and he saves a wedding on behalf of this couple and on behalf of this master that's overseeing the wedding, and he delivers extraordinary joy in what otherwise is an ordinary event in an ordinary part of the world to a largely forgettable couple. See, our crises in life they are a stage for Jesus to display his power and to bring joy. Your crisis in life is a stage for Jesus to display his power and to bring joy. Do you believe that? Do you see problems and crises in your life as an opportunity for Jesus to display his power and actually bring you his kingdom-type joy. Uh, I love the OPB version of uh, the whole Sherlock series. Have you ever seen OPB Sherlock? It's pretty cool, okay? It's pretty awesome. And I love, I love Sherlock Holmes in general. Just, you're always, I love mysteries. You're like, how are they gonna figure this out, okay? But every episode starts with a problem, with a crisis, right? It's revealed, and you immediately think, as the viewer, oh, man, Sherlock will solve this how's he going to do it? You're never like, oh, this is going to be it. This is the one time he won't solve anything. No, you know that he is going to solve this mystery. And that's the joy of the show. It's actually seeing how he solves it. And every time the response is like, wow, I didn't even know, I didn't even see that coming, right? He, he figured it out, right? He, that was amazing. See, a crisis or a problem in Sherlock, it creates a stage for you to expect his abilities to shine through. In the same way, we must believe this about Jesus because it's what Jesus does. It's what Jesus does. It means every single problem you face is an opportunity for Jesus to display his power. Your, your need right now, whatever you walked into this room with this morning as a need, that's an opportunity for Jesus to either display his provision or to display his sufficiency in your life. Your, your weakness in life, whatever that is for you, is an opportunity for Jesus to display his strength 
And do you see that? So what's Mary's response to this crisis, and what's Jesus' response? Well, Mary, with the poise only a mother can have, says, right, do what he says. She confidently tells the servants to follow his orders, and her response is basically this trusting in Jesus. And we see in this miracle, I want you to see the king of joy. Look in verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, and everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you, you've kept the good wine until now. Uh, this, this must have been um, stressful, I would like to imagine, if you're one of these servants. Jesus comes to you and says, hey, those purification jars where people like wash their hands and utensils and stuff to abide by uh, Jew- Jewish law, right? I want you to go and take those, those are nasty, fill them up with water, okay? And then just ladle it out, take it to the master of the house. If I was a servant, I would feel like saying, Jesus, we don't, we don't have a water problem, right? We have a, a wine problem. We don't, we don't have a water problem. We have a, a wine problem, but, but we don't have that in the story. That's just if I were as a servant, okay? Um, these people, they trust Jesus, okay? And they bring this water-turned-wine to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet was, was not the host. He was actually a head waiter or toast master. It was a pretty distinguished position. Usually, he was called on to take care of the distribution of food and drink at really large social occasions. And this guy was astounded by the high quality of the wine since generally, a poor quality was served once the taste of the guests became dulled. So the groom doesn't even know what happened. The, the head master, the, ma- the master doesn't know but the disciples know what just happened, and Mary knows what just happened, and the servants know what just happened. See, Jesus provides the wine for this festival of joy, and in so doing, he shows us that he is the true master of the banquet, that he is the Lord of the feast, that he is the host who brings joy. Jesus' first sign is to do something that is human celebrating. Think about this. His first sign is life-affirming. It's community-enriching. It overcomes all the social shame and awkwardness of running out of wine. It's an experience that brings joy. This is his first sign. Here, Here is Jesus who says, I don't bring a famine, right? I bring a feast. I don't bring a funeral. I bring a life-affirming festival, These were six jars of water, right? You can do the math, right? 150 gallons turned into the finest wine. That's quite a party, okay? But what Jesus is really doing is he's actually pointing us to something way more significant that the Old Testament always talks about. This will be on the screen. In Isaiah chapter 25, this this is what we're supposed to think about when we see what Jesus is doing here. Isaiah 25 says this, On this mountain, referring to the future when the kingdom of God comes, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples 
the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Jesus' first miracle, guys, is pointing us to the joy and gladness that is found in the kingdom of God. It's gladness that's found when Jesus is actually the king of your life. This is the joy and gladness that comes. See, what you see throughout the Christian message and the work of Jesus, what you see in this miracle is that Jesus at its, Jesus' message, his work at its core is about bringing joy. It's about bringing satisfying, lasting, feasting-like joy. I mean, when Jesus does things in the gospels, people aren't like, oh, bummer, right? I mean, no, it brings joy. The kingdom brings life. And, and many of you have gone looking for joy, right? And, and you have desperately been trying to find someone to provide you with a lasting joy. You've looked for wine that can satisfy you, maybe a form of comfort, pleasure, like approval from somebody in the world. And this morning you walk in here and you're still thirsty, right? So how do we get that joy? Well, we get it when we trust him, Jesus, the king of joy, and him alone for our joy. Look at how Mary responds to Jesus when he sort of distances himself from her. She doesn't say, well, I guess I'll go get wine somewhere else now. She doesn't say, well, apparently, Jesus, you don't grasp the urgency of this situation. And she doesn't even pull her mom card and say, you know what? You know who I am? I'm your mother, and you will do as I say. She doesn't even do that. Instead, she says to the servants, do what he tells you. And even if you don't understand what he's asking, to draw the water and bring it to the master, and even if it, if it doesn't make any sense to you and it's counterintuitive and strange or according to your timing or your wisdom, do what he tells you to do. Trust him in doing this. In other words, he is the answer to our joy. The joy is, is running low, but he's the answer and there's nowhere else to go. Uh, there aren't many things that I know about my wife Elizabeth's uh, late grandfather, Grandpa Lewis. There's not a ton of things I know about him, but I do know one thing, and that's how he made coffee, okay? And what he would do is he would take one scoop of coffee, put it in the filter, fill up the tank with water, click brew, okay? And what would be produced from this brewing of coffee at best was a light, 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 tan-looking thing of water, okay? It was like water that kind of just looked a little dirty, okay? And this is kind of like what the coffee was like that he would make. It's what he would produce. It, to be honest with you, it wouldn't be very satisfying to you, right? It wasn't like what you go get at Trot and True right over here, right? Or, or a place like Coffee Culture. And it would be ridiculous knowing how he made his coffee. And it would be ridiculous to think that if I knew how he made his coffee and I went to that pot of coffee and I poured myself a cup, thinking that that cup was gonna satisfy me as if I went over here around the corner to try and true. Like that would be ridiculous, right? I, I know how the coffee is made, I know it's not gonna be very satisfying, and so if I went to the pot, I poured myself a cup, I put it to my lips, I'm fooling myself if I think it's gonna satisfy me in the same way that I hope another cup of coffee that's better brewed would, right? My hopes 
would merely be a mirage of that cup turning into a great cup of coffee all of a sudden. See, there, I think there's many things in the world that we've tried to turn Grandpa Lewis coffee into tried and true coffee. We think it's just gonna transform or something and be the real deal. There are many things in the world that we've tried to turn into wine, you could say. You've tried to make your marriage into wine, right? You've tried to turn you know, professional success into wine or sexual pleasure into wine or relationships into wine or substances that you abuse into wine or maybe even your body image into wine. But only Jesus Christ has the wine of lasting joy. He is the answer to your joy, the source of joy, the king of joy. And when we don't have real joy, there's just these, there's several things that we'll do, okay? Maybe this is you. One, if you don't have joy, sometimes you'll blame yourself, okay? You'll think, well, I failed, so if I don't fail next time in this area, then I'll be happy, right? It was, it was, it was on me. I'm going to blame myself. It was my failure. This is not the problem, right? It's me. I failed. I'm just not going to fail again. Then I'll be happy. Or maybe you, you blame the things that you look to for joy. You think maybe the issue is that I need a new career, or I need a new spouse even, or or I just need different wine to make me happy. Or maybe you blame the entire universe, okay? And you're like, well, I used to hope for joy, and now I realize that I was just being really naive, and you, you can't really possibly have lasting joy. So it's just the universe's fault, right? Or there's a fourth option. You can turn to Jesus. You can say, the problem is that my entire life, I've tried to make water into wine. But Jesus Christ has already done that for me. And he invites me to trust him as the king of my life. And he invites me to the banquet. And he invites me to drink and to enjoy and to come to the table where there is the most glorious of wine. And that is the invitation that we have this morning. But it comes at a cost, okay? It comes at a cost. If you will look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let me ask you, what did it cost the disciples to experience this moment? What did it cost them? Belief? Belief? Being around Jesus? Right? That's all he did. They were with Jesus and they saw his glory. This sign manifested the glory of Jesus. It showed everybody who saw this who he is. That as the scriptures teach that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. That this sign displayed the goodness and the gravity and the weightiness and the beauty of Jesus. And they saw it because they were there what did it cost him to have this sort of joy? It was belief, right? The, 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 just think of all the people who the wine was running out and now they have even better wine and it's overflowing, so to speak. All the people didn't even know what had happened. And they're like, wow, this is a great party. They're experiencing joy. But do you think that's even comparable to what the disciples and Mary and the servants kind of joy is that they're experiencing in this moment? I mean, who cares about wine? 
we just saw the glory of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. It's incomparable, this type of joy. I want us to sit in and see this morning that for this blessing of Jesus' kingdom and the joy that comes to us in our lives when he is king of our lives, it comes at a great cost. But it's not a cost that comes at your hands. It may not have cost the disciples much at all, honestly, but the cost of joy is an expensive cost for Jesus. I skipped something that maybe you thought nothing of, or maybe you're asking yourself, why did he skip over that? Look at verse five, what did Jesus say? I briefly referenced it. Sorry, verse four. Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus says his hour had not yet come. What's going on here? Why would he even say that? I've always read this and been like, that's so weird, right? You just said, sorry, Mary, you're not gonna get me to do this, and then you do it. But he has a sentence in there, my hour has not yet come. It's, it's really important. What's going on here? Why would he say that? Well, at a glance, it seems out of place. Why, why during a wedding feast would Jesus be thinking about his hour? He just showed you that's what he's thinking about. Why would he be thinking about his hour at a wedding feast? Well, please follow me here. I think this is really important. Because if you were Jesus' age, he's 30, okay, you're at a wedding, you're single, and you're in a culture where the vast, vast, vast majority of people are married by the age of 20, okay? He, he lives in a culture where this is the case, and he's 30, he's not married, okay? What would you be doing at, your, at this wedding? You'd be thinking of your own wedding, right? You'd be thinking of your own wedding, you'd be thinking about your wedding, what it would be like, hopefully, who it will be with, right? E even if you attend a wedding and you're engaged, what are you doing at that wedding? You're taking notes, right? Like you're thinking about your wedding, like, oh, I would do this, or no, I wouldn't do that, or whatever, right? Even if you've been married forever, you go to a wedding, what happens? You kind of think about your wedding. You're like, oh, remember our wedding, right? That was, that was great. Or like, oh man, that was a nightmare, right? I don't know what your wedding was like. But what happens? You think about your wedding. And Jesus, he knows very intimately the entire Hebrew Bible, very intimately, right? And in the entire Old Testament, which he's very aware of to say the least. God is consistently pursuing and loving his people. He's constantly redeeming them and staying faithful to them and showing them what love and mercy looks like to have and experience every single moment. And you see in places more explicitly in the Old Testament, like the book of Hosea, where God calls a prophet Hosea to be a representative figure to God's people as a husband to a bride. One of the key themes in the Hebrew Old Testament, when, when you look at the picture of God and his people, is a picture of a husband and a bride. And Jesus knows this, I'm certain of it. God is our husband and we are his people, his wife. This is the imagery of the Old Testament. But even Jesus, he picks up on this in the Gospels. You see in the Gospel account of Matthew and other places, he, he, he re brings back this imagery of a husband and wife, God and his people. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and the whole story that we know is the story that's coming. There's this great promise and vision of this bride who is the church who would come to her husband. And her husband is Jesus. In fact, Jesus' bride would come in his second coming, and it's described as a great wedding feast for his people, his bride. And he is described as the groom. But Jesus knows that his bride is not a woman. It's a people, a 
people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is partly what's, what's happening here when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He's thinking about a different wedding. But secondly, consider what will it take for this wedding to happen? What's the cost? It's not financial like most weddings. What the word hour means throughout the Gospels, I already told you, it's not typically the time of day, but it's Jesus referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection. So when he talks to the woman at the well, he says the hour is coming. That's what he's talking about. Or the supper before his betrayal and he's with his disciples and he holds up the bread and the cup and he says, the hour has come. That's what he's talking about. And so Mary comes and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus is saying, I'm not ready to die. It's not the right hour. Jesus sees that joy is breaking down, that devastation is about to come to this social situation. There is humiliation in a party that is falling apart, and now he's asked to pick up the pieces and restore the situation where joy is slipping away. And it's going to be very, very costly to restore this joy, to replenish the quality of this wine the amount of wine. It's huge and it's massive. And Jesus says to his mom, mom, I'm not sure how aware you are of how costly this will be. To bring joy to this wedding will require a sacrifice. That's for sure. But to bring joy to my wedding will in fact require my death. That's what it's going to require. It's at my hour. And for, for there to be joy at my wedding where there is this beautiful and glorious bride, there needs to be a price that's paid. It's my death. It's my hour so that I can bring a bride to my altar. That's what this verse means about these jars. Do you notice, why would Jesus choose purification jars? Kind of weird, right? There might have been other options maybe, I don't know. But six stone jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing, right? For there to be a glorious and pure bride, there needs to be a washing. There needs to be a kind of cleansing. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that this cleansing comes through a shedding of blood. That's what we see. And for this wedding to take place and for the joy of the bride to occur, Jesus would have to be the one who would shed his own blood. In other words, his blood becomes our wine. And his blood spilled becomes the wine that's poured out. And he says this at the Last Supper, quote, this wine represents the new covenant in my blood. This represents the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus Christ knows that for him to revive the wine of joy, that he has to drink from the cup of God's wrath. And for him to provide wine that is heady and sweet and life-giving, he will have to go thirsty on a cross and he will have to drink vinegar and gall on that cross. That the joy of the banquet only comes through his sorrow that he experiences in his hour. Something that you must see today. So right now in Cana, Jesus is merely seeing the cup, but on the cross, he will drink it. See, wine wasn't the only thing that was running low at this time. It wasn't the only thing that was running low in this place and even at this wedding, and it might not be the only thing running low in your life today. See, God's people in this time, they were marred with spiritual barrenness. They had settled for rule-keeping religion instead of experiencing life-changing relationship with God. And God the Father has Jesus use this as a stage to display his power, and it's a display of restoring the joy and blessing that comes when Jesus is the king of your life. And John goes to tremendous lengths to describe these barrels and how they are now overflowing with amazing wine. He talks about the quality so as to describe and display that a new day is dawning. He's trying to show you something new is happening. It's bursting onto the scene. 
And uh, this, this drive into Corvallis this morning was new for me. I'm not usually driving in that early to go to church, right? And so uh, I haven't done that in like five years. Let me tell you, it was really peaceful though. It was awesome. There was like nobody awake, okay? And uh, what I love about early mornings is seeing a sunrise. Sunrises are like my favorite things in life. I don't get to see them all the time, but when I do, they're incredible, okay? Uh, I remember even in college, um, there were a handful of times that I saw the sunrise. And maybe some of you are like, what is that? I've never even seen one. Um, I'd recommend them. They're pretty cool, okay? If you've never seen a sunrise, you should go see one tomorrow, okay? Go to bed early, okay? Um, but I remember once, um, I remember once driving with, in college with a few friends, and we are like, let's go to the Grand Canyon and see the sunrise, which was like an eight-hour drive from our university in Southern California. But in college, this is what you do. And the whole time, you're like, we'll stay awake, and we'll have fun the whole time. And you're like, hey, man, you're dozing off, and it's not as glorious as you envision it being the whole way there, okay? But man, it was so worth it, because we made it. We got there on time, and we watched the sunrise over the Grand Canyon, okay? It was, it was spectacular. And what happens in a sunrise, especially over the Grand Canyon, what, there's an explosion of light. There's like an explosion of color. And like I said, if you've never seen a sunrise, you need to. Because if you've ever experienced one, you know that a sunrise, it always does something to you. There's always this sense of like, this is a new day. This is a new day. This is a, this is a new season that's dawning here. There's a new opportunity. There's new possibility in life. In, in the same way, these people who saw this would have been feeling something like that. Something new is happening here. There's a new day that's dawning. We don't totally understand what just happened. We don't know how he even did that, but we know he did it, right? We know he did it, and, and something new is happening. And look at the blessing and the joy that Jesus brings. Make no mistake, guys, this is true for you this morning. A new day is dawning. When the kingdom of God comes, a new day dawns, and today is a new day. If, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, if you have Jesus, every day is a new day. You might be going through really hard stuff, but you wake up and you go, there is a new day. There's hope today. There's joy that could be found today, not just in a circumstance that I want to see happen, but in a person. In a person, joy and satisfaction are all wonderful, guys, but they're just byproducts of the true blessing that's Jesus. Do you believe that? And maybe you come in here this morning and you're very aware that you are living your life, your way, and this is not working. Okay? I want to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. Turn from your brokenness and trust in Jesus by faith this morning. Or maybe you've grown cold in your affection for Jesus. I want to invite you to come back to him that you may be refreshed this morning. Okay? Blessing isn't found in these byproducts. It's found in a person Jesus. Don't miss that. Don't go seeking joy in things that he just brings. You only find it in him, the king of joy. The king of joy. But that joy that can be had this morning comes at a really, really steep cost. Father, this morning I do pray that we would stop running to other places to find the solutions.